As I was praying over the course of the last several weeks about what book of the Bible we should study next after this whole series that we just finished up on Psalms, the letter of 1 Peter is the, is the book that kept coming to mind for me over the course of this time. And I believe the message of this letter of 1 Peter speaks into our lives as followers of Jesus in a particularly relevant way in the days that we're living in. And as we get into this book, I believe that you will see that as well. The letter covers a number of topics, but if I had to sum up in a single sentence what the letter of 1 Peter is about, it might be this. The letter is about living a Jesus-honoring life in an environment that is opposed to you doing that. Peter gives us reasons motivations, encouragements for seeking to live a Jesus-honoring life. He gives us examples of others who have lived this kind of life, namely Jesus himself. And he applies the living out of a Jesus-honoring life in some actual life situations. Opposition to living a Jesus-honoring life can come in all kinds of ways. There can be direct opposition in the form of persecution, as many were facing in the days that Peter was writing the letter of 1 Peter. Opposition can come in more subtle and underhanded ways, too, through marginalizing uh, Jesus followers, criticizing, demonizing, misrepresenting, blaming, and mocking us. We see this kind of opposition to Christianity increasingly in our own days. Opposition to living a Jesus-honoring life can come through our own sinful nature, which doesn't want to do that. Opposition can come from the spiritual forces opposed to God's good work that He's doing in the world and in our lives. How Peter tells us to respond to this hostility and opposition to our seeking to live a Jesus-honoring life is maybe unexpected. Does he say to yell louder and to hit back harder than the opposition? No. That was once the way Peter himself responded to the opposition. But he learned that swinging a sword in the name of the Lord is not the way that the Lord wanted him to behave. You might remember, for example, that story when the opposition came to arrest Jesus that night in the Garden of Gethsemane when they were going to uh, crucify him the next day, Peter, he pulled out his sword and he tried to kill a man. And Jesus told Peter to put his sword away and then he healed the man that Peter had injured. Peter tells us in his letter to imitate Jesus, to pursue living a holy life, to remember that this is not our eternal home to rejoice that we are sharing in the life of Jesus, to remember what Jesus has done for us, to always, he says, be prepared to share with others in a gentle and respectful way about what gives us hope in this life, and to make sure that the suffering that we endure is not deserved. Well, Let's make some introductory comments about the letter of 1 Peter before we dive into it. 1 Peter is not a letter to a particular church in a particular city about a particular issue, but a letter 
to all followers of Jesus, Christians scattered throughout the region known at that time as Asia Minor and what today is largely modern-day Turkey. I prepared a map for you, hopefully you can make it out, that shows those regions. The actual territories named in the letter are Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. I've also put on the map cities of Jerusalem, Antioch, and Rome to help orient you. Peter is believed to have actually been in Rome when he wrote this letter to those regions, the churches that were there. First Peter is referred to as a general epistle in the New Testament, meaning that it is not a letter addressed to a particular church or person about a particular issue. Uh, it doesn't have a particular issue in mind for why it was written, other than the general encouragement and strengthening of followers of Jesus. For example, there's not a particular problem present in a particular church that the letter is addressing and seeking to solve, like we see in some of Paul's letters. Letters in our own day usually start with identifying who the letter is to, and at the end of the letter, it identifies who the letter is from. First Peter follows the typical format of first century letters instead, which identify the writer of the letter first, then the recipients of the letter, and then finally the content of the letter follows that. Let's begin reading in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 1. Peter writes, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to God's elect, exiles scattered throughout the provinces of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through the sanctifying work of the Spirit to be obedient to Jesus Christ and sprinkled with His blood. Grace and peace be yours in abundance. Peter says a lot in these first two verses and I want to try to unpack this a little bit for us today in our study so we can get a grasp on what he's saying in these opening words. And the first thing that he says is Peter. He identifies himself as the one who's writing this letter. This man, Peter, is referred to in several different ways in the New Testament, actually. His original given Hebrew name is Simeon, and the Greek version of that name is Simon. He's also referred to by his Aramaic name Cephas, which means rock, and by the Greek version of that name, which is Petros or Peter. So we have all of these different ways. Simon, Cephas, Peter, this is all the same guy. It says, an apostle of Jesus Christ. Peter was one of the people that Jesus Christ himself gave special authority and ability for leading and developing the early church. <clears throat> when Peter spoke, or he wrote as an apostle, as he does in this letter, he was operating under the inspiration and authority of the Holy Spirit. question that is sometimes asked is, are there apostles today in the church? And the answer is, not in the same sense and type as men like Peter, John, and Paul. They were apostles with a capital A, who possessed a unique call and responsibility and authority given to them by Jesus Christ. There are no capital A apostles anymore. 
There are people in our day who may use the title of apostle, but they are not in the same caliber or with the same authority as the apostles of the early church like Peter. Let's pause right here, though, for a moment, and let's talk about Peter. He had an interesting life. When we first encounter Peter in the Bible, he is a professional fisherman. Peter and his brother Andrew were in business together with two other guys who were also brothers, James and John, and all four of these men were among the original 12 disciples of Jesus. If you flip over to Mark chapter 1, verse 16, it introduces us to all four of these guys. It says, as Jesus walked beside the Sea of Galilee, this is where these four men made their living as fishermen, he saw Simon, Peter, and his brother Andrew casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come, follow me, Jesus said, and I will send you out to fish for people. At once they left their nets and followed him. When he had gone a little farther, he saw James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John in a boat, preparing their nets. Without delay, he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired men and followed him. Peter became the leader and spokesman for the twelve disciples of Jesus. Peter is the one who would ask Jesus the questions that they were all wanting to ask him, but they were afraid to ask him. Peter is the one who would make the bold proclamations that they were all thinking, but afraid to make. Peter was the one who would speak up, jump in first, charge ahead, whether he really knew what he was doing or not. Peter was one of the three people who were included in the special circle inner circle of trusted friends that Jesus had, which included Peter, James, and John. Peter is probably more well-known for his goof-ups and his failures than for his successes. This is one of the things that makes Peter so endearing to many of us. So endearing to many of us, though. It's not that we like to see people fail. But it's nice to know that there's someone so close to Jesus and used in such important ways by Jesus that could be such a regular person like us. Some of Peter's more well-known goof-ups include, and you might remember some of these, his patronizing of Jesus about where to fish in the Sea of Galilee, his failed attempt to walk on water, his goofy idea to build shrines to commemorate the transfiguration of Jesus, his rebuking of Jesus for predicting his rejection and crucifixion, his falling asleep instead of praying like Jesus told him to do in the Garden of Gethsemane, his taking out his sword and cutting off the ear of the servant of the high priest when Jesus was arrested, and his heartbreaking denial of Jesus on the night that Jesus had his trial uh, when he would be crucified. Now, to be fair, Peter also had his moments of brilliance and spiritual insight, like the time when Jesus asked him who he believed Jesus was, and Peter said, you are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. I mean, he nailed it that time. After Jesus' death, resurrection, and ascension, 
Peter played a very important role in the development of the early church. In a very real sense, he was the first voice of the church. He preached the very first sermon. We find that in Acts chapter 2. Peter is the person who broke important new ground for the gospel when he entered the house of the Gentile man Cornelius and preached the gospel to him and the other Gentile people who were gathered there in his house. And he saw the Holy Spirit touch their lives in a powerful way. Salvation through Jesus Christ had only been offered to Jews before that time. Now salvation would be offered to all people, both Jews and Gentiles alike. Peter and Paul are the two major characters in the book of Acts. The first 12 chapters of Acts are devoted largely to Peter and his ministry. And the last 16 chapters of the book of Acts are really focused on the ministry of Paul. The letter of 1 Peter was probably written between 62 and 64 A.D., while Peter was in Rome, shortly before the great persecutions of the church by Nero. Nero was emperor of the Roman Empire from 54 to 68 A.D. He had a reputation of being one of the vilest human beings who have ever lived. One Roman historian described Nero like this, as a vicious and vain, cruel and lustful man, he won the hatred of Senate, people, armies, Jews, and Christians, and he died without an heir. Throughout his, or I mean, through his underhanded dealings and treatment of people and his selfish extravagance, the Roman Empire was bankrupt and in a severe financial crisis in the early 60s. Then in 64 AD, a great fire broke out in the city of Rome, which decimated the city, totally destroying three of the city's districts and severely damaging seven others. Only four of the 14 districts of the city escaped destruction. More than two-thirds of the city had suffered tremendous loss. Well, rumors began to spread claiming that Nero had started these fires himself. So in an effort to divert suspicion away from himself, Nero claimed that the already unpopular Christians had actually been the ones who caused the fires and ordered that they pay for their awful crimes. And so began one of the most vicious periods of persecution of Christians in history. According to the Roman historian Tacitus, large numbers of Christians were arrested, charged, and condemned, not only for the crime of arson, but also for the hatred of the human race. Ironic, isn't it, that Christians who were to be the champions of love at that time were accused of hatred of the human race. Well, false rumors were spread about the Christians intending to turn the general population against them even more. For example, it was said that Christian baptism involved the drowning of babies. And communion was cannibalism, where they would actually eat these babies. Christian love feasts were orgies. And on and on it went. The Christians were killed in a number of different ways intended to mock, humiliate, maximize their suffering. Some were dressed in skins of animals and then torn to pieces by dogs and eaten. Some were crucified. Some were 
burned as human torches to light the streets at night. The Romans were well known for their brutality, and all of that brutality was brought to bear against the Christians of Rome. It's believed the Apostle Peter was one of the Christians killed during this terrible persecution that took place under the leadership of Nero. It's also believed that the Apostle Paul was killed during these persecutions as well. Ancient church tradition claims that Peter was crucified upside down at his own request because he didn't feel worthy to die in the same way that his Lord Jesus had died. Unfortunately, we can't substantiate that claim and story as true or not, but it is interesting to consider. As a final remark about Peter's life, I want us to remember that the person who wrote this letter that we are going to be reading and studying over the next several weeks, he lived out the things that he taught and wrote about here. He was fully committed to Jesus Christ, even willing to die for his faith in Jesus, having found what he believed to be something of far greater worth than anything that this world has to offer. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ to God's elect exiles. The word here translated exiles refers to a person who is residing in a particular location at the moment but doesn't consider this place their home. This person is a temporary resident, a foreigner, a pilgrim, a sojourner, a stranger in this place. And this captures... The reality of the Christian's life. We are living here at this moment, but this is not our ultimate home. This is not our native country. Our home is somewhere else. Any day, we will be packing up and moving on to our true home of heaven. When that day will come, we don't know. We can't even accurately predict when that day will be may come with the second coming of Jesus Christ, who will come suddenly and unexpectedly like a thief in the night. Or it may come when our passing from this life takes place, which could happen at any time, come suddenly without warning. Uh, It always is surprising to me when the the Lord takes a person's life. It's, It's never something that we expect, is it? And it could be us. This idea of believers being exiles, strangers, pilgrims, foreigners, is one that Peter carries throughout his letter. In 1 Peter 1.17, for example, he says, Since you call on a father who judges each person's work impartially, live out your time here on earth as foreigners here in reverent fear. 1 Peter 2.11 Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires which war against your soul. So it says, To God's elect, exiles scattered throughout the provinces of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. As we mentioned earlier, the people that Peter is writing to here are Christians living in the area of Asia Minor, which today we know as the country of Turkey. It says, God's elect who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. This idea of being chosen by God 
It's something that has caused more than a few arguments over the years between Christians as they try to work out their theology. And I have no desire today to get into a debate about the theological arguments for and against predestination and how exactly that should be explained. Instead, I want to say this. The idea of being chosen is intended by Peter to be a beautiful expression of God's love for his people. If your mind goes in some other direction other than that, then you're missing the point of what Peter is talking about here. To know that you have been chosen is a wonderful thing. Do you remember the proverbial picking of teams in grade school? Oh, that was brutal. If you were one of the first ones picked for a team, it was a great feeling. I want Jeff. Yes! But if you were one of the poor slobs that were left until the very end, it was horrible. And the worst was if you were the last one there and the team captain of the other team says to to the other team captain, you can have Jeff. You knew then, without doubt, that you were a liability for your team rather than an asset. I mean, no one wanted you on their team. You can have Jeff. We don't want him. The Christian should never feel uncomfortable or threatened by the doctrine of election, being chosen by God to be his child. This idea is intended to be a great comfort the Jesus follower. It says that you are not an accident. You didn't stumble into the kingdom of God by chance. You have not been adopted into the family of God under some false pretense that will one day be uncovered. You'll be found out to be a fraud and then be cast out of the kingdom. No, God chose you specifically and personally to be his beloved child. He sought you out. He pursued you. He deliberately picked you. He knew you before you were conceived and had plans and intentions for you. God loves you. He wants you. He always intended to rescue you and bring you home to be with Him forever. The unbeliever shouldn't necessarily feel threatened by the doctrine of election and predestination either. Why? Well, because the unbeliever doesn't know yet. If they've been chosen by the Lord or not, they'll only know that after they have come to believe in Jesus as Savior. See, as Steve Brown said, the doctrine of election and predestination, it's a family secret of sorts. It's for only the family to know, and only those in the family will ever know it. It's unfortunate that what is intended to be a beautiful blessing and comfort for God's children has gotten turned into something else. It has become a discussion about who's in and who's out of God's kingdom. If we read our Bible carefully, we'll see that the question about who's in and who's out is not something for you and I to be talking about in an authoritative way. It's it's above our pay grade. This is something for God himself, not for us. What we can know is that when we turn to God and begin to follow Jesus Christ, we discover this beautiful truth that we have been chosen from the beginning of time to be his beloved child. None of us are second string. 
None of us will be left standing, waiting to be chosen after everyone else has been picked. None of us have stumbled into the family of God by accident. And the reason God chose you in the beginning will continue to be the reason that He continues to choose you now and forever. What is that reason? Because He loves you. You are His precious child, and He loves you. You know, this is not a unique idea expressed only by Peter either. Paul expresses this same beautiful truth in Ephesians 1.4. Paul writes, For he, God, chose us in him, Christ, before the creation of the world, to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love he predestined us for adoption to sonship and daughtership through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will. Over in Romans 8.29, For those God foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son, that He might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And those He predestined, He also called. Those He called, He also justified. Those He justified, He also glorified. You're chosen, Christian, and it's an awesome thing to know that, isn't it? Amen. who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through the sanctifying work of the Spirit. The Holy Spirit makes us holy, sets us apart as God's own, and makes us citizens of heaven. It's His work in our life that's transforming us to be obedient to Jesus Christ. It says, we've been set apart by the Holy Spirit to take on the character and the nature of Jesus. God's intention for us is to duplicate Jesus' character in us, expressing the glory of God in and through our life now and forever. Our part in this sanctifying, transforming process is obedience. When we are obeying the Lord, we are cooperating and participating with the Lord in the good work that He's doing in us. When we're not obeying the Lord, we're working against Him and the work that He is desiring to do in us. We're tearing down what He is seeking to build in us. But here's another beautiful wrinkle in all of that. Part of the Holy Spirit's good work in us is to make us obedient, to create in us the desire for obedience. That was part of the promise of the new covenant that He spoke to us in Ezekiel 11.20, Jeremiah 31.33, Hebrews 8.10, Hebrews 10.16 that He would put His law on us and He would move us to follow it. It's awesome what God is doing in us. It says, and sprinkled with His blood, the blood of Jesus. Peter draws from this imagery of the Jewish priest sprinkling the blood of the sacrificed animal on the people, symbolically cleansing them from sin and we have been cleansed and forgiven forever through the sacrifice of Jesus. Over in Hebrews chapter 9, verse 11, it says, But when Christ came as high priest of the good things that are now already here, He went through the greater and more perfect tabernacle that is not made with human hands, that is to say, is not part of this creation. He did not enter by means of the blood of goats and calves, but He entered the most holy place 
once for all by his own blood, thus obtaining eternal redemption for us. The blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkled on those who are ceremonially unclean sanctify them so that they are outwardly clean. How much more then will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself unblemished to God, cleanse our consciences from acts that lead to death so that we may serve the living God. And Peter closes this opening piece of his letter by saying, Grace and peace be yours in abundance. The New American Standard Version translates the Greek in abundance as in the fullest measure, which I think captures the meaning here in a very beautiful way. Peter's blessing for us is this, that God's grace and God's peace be ours in the fullest possible measure. We're going to stop there today in our study, and we'll pick it up next time at verse 3. Christian, as you go through life this coming week, I want you to remember three things. The first is that you're chosen, which means you are clearly and dearly loved by your Father in heaven. Second, this is not your homeland. We're looking forward to the city whose architect and builder is God, heaven. Third, the Holy Spirit is at work in your life, creating in you the character and the nature of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Cooperate and participate in that good work by obeying the Lord. If you're not a follower of Jesus yet, I want to say that you can be. Jesus has extended an invitation to you. Jesus lived a perfect life showing us who God is and teaching us how God wants us to be. Jesus died as a sacrifice for our sins. He died in our place, taking upon himself the punishment that we deserve for living our life on our own terms rather than obeying the Lord. Then on the third day, Jesus came back to life and he now lives forever as our advocate. He overcame death for us. We can now have the hope of resurrection to live forever with him. Through Jesus, we can have a personal relationship with God as his sons and his daughters. We can be born again, as Jesus said. The Holy Spirit brings us to life spiritually and begins to grow the life of Jesus in us. If you want a new personal relationship with God through Jesus, you can begin to do that through a simple prayer. Let's bow our heads in prayer and we'll pray this prayer together. If you want to receive Christ, you want to begin this new life with Him, just pray this prayer. Lord, forgive me for my sins. I'm sorry for not following You. Thank You, Jesus, for dying for me and coming back to life so I can live forever with You. Make me into the person You want me to be. I'm going to follow You with my life. Lord, I pray for all of us this morning gathered here. Lord, we thank you for the good work you've done in our life, the sanctifying work of the Spirit. Lord, I ask that you would encourage your people today. You would remind us 
that we have been chosen. We are your kids. We've been chosen from the very beginning of time to be yours. I pray that you would encourage and comfort your children with that thought this week. In Jesus' name, amen.